Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here this morning. We're going to continue a series we started last week, Think Like Jesus. Now, we started the entire series with a couple of questions. They're not new questions. They've been with us for as long as there has been humanity on planet Earth. Uh, Great thinkers, Plato and Aristotle, have struggled with these questions, everybody. And Jesus weighs in on these as well. And that's really what this series is about. Here's what the questions that we're talking about. What is the good life? And what is a good person? And how do you obtain these? How do we obtain these things? And what we talked about last week is that most of our life, most of us, whether you're aware of it or not, sometimes it's sub, kind of subconsciously happening, we are going after some version of this first question, or at least our understanding of it. Most of advertising focuses on some version of the good life. And it's effective, it's very effective. We, that's what we want, and they know what we want. But what's interesting is that when we get to the end of life, most of us, it would be true to say that what we really want to be remembered for is being a good person, that you did something, you contributed to something, your life meant something to somebody, and it made a difference somewhere, right? And that's what we were looking for. And, and most people live their life feeling like those two are sort of separate. According to our culture of today, anyway, the good life looks different than what we might define as a good person. Now, here's where Jesus, when he weighs in on this issue, he's so unique and so beautifully refreshing. Is that he's the only one that teaches that it is the good person who is, or the person who is becoming good as God defines good, that is living the good life. And he came to help us to connect those dots, that those actually are one and the same, that they are accomplishing both of those at the same time. And not only did he come to unveil that, but the very essence of his message, this gospel, this good news that he came to bring, was the answer to these issues that every person has ever asked and has gone after and has strove for. He's telling us that this good news of the kingdom of God, its availability now is open to human beings. And everybody can not only enter into the kingdom, but can live in the kingdom. You don't have to wait till you die. Like this is available for you right here, right now, and still to this day. And this was the good news of Jesus. But he gave us this warning right at the beginning of this section of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. We looked at this last week. Let's look at it one more time, a warning from Jesus before we dive into the nitty-gritty of how we live in the kingdom. He says, but I warn you, unless your, let's say it together, your righteousness, right, is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will never, Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was quite a sobering warning to people his days, because they looked at the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the religious law and thought, nobody's better than them. Like, they're as good as it gets. 
And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to have a whole different approach than the one that they have. You see, their righteousness was all about an outward behavioral appearance. Their righteousness came from behavior modification. How can I incrementally try to become more and more good in the eyes of other people by doing good things that people will go, oh, that's incredible, here's a trophy for you, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with doing nice things that people recognize and give you accolades for, but he's saying, that's not what I'm trying to manifest in your life. Now, there, there should be maybe that at the end, but there's something deeper I'm trying to do in your life. That you need to begin with a radically different definition of this word righteousness. You can't start with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a righteousness that just says, um, we just need to be more legalistic. We need to be more uh, and better at keeping rules, and we need to have more and more rules, and if we can just keep all the rules, then we'll be in good shape. And Jesus is like, that's not what I came to do. It's just heap more rules and rules on you. But I want to help you to become the kind of people that don't really need the rules anymore. Your life just flow. You just live in sync with the law of God. You just live, like, you just, it just naturally flows out of you. So how do we get there, Jesus? Like, how do we start to live like that? Well, we need to begin with a radically different approach to the word righteousness. So here's a new definition. I laid on you last week. We're going to look at it again. Righteousness. This means having a right love for God that leads to a right relationship both with God and other people. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these two, right? And then it produces, whenever we have the right love, we have the right relationship, it produces the right behavior or the right actions will come flowing out of our life. It's not because like, oh, I'm keeping all the rules. Look at me, God. I'm checking all the boxes. I'm keeping all the rules, right? This is, this is look how good, how righteous I am. It's not about that because uh, people of Jesus' day would say to Jesus, hey, look, I've, I've got it all together. Look, I've got, I'm doing these things. But Jesus would say, I, I'm, I want you to focus deeper into you what's happening inside your heart. Now, over the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at these six statements of Jesus where he's going he's gonna to set us up every time by saying, you have heard it said, but I'm telling you, you have been thinking one way, but I'm going to give you a new way to think. I'm going to give you a new grid by which you make decisions, by which you live your life, how you understand the kingdom and how to live in it as God's people, his citizens, his children. How do you do that? And Jesus is going to help us to challenge the way we think over these next several weeks. And what he's doing is he's trying to move us away from the same error that was made in the first century, and that is hollow religious activity. This is still with us today. And maybe you have felt this before. Hollow religious activity, this idea of we're just doing right things because we feel like this is hopefully gonna get us in right graces with God. Jesus is saying it needs to go deeper than that. Because Jesus' audience would have said, hey, I'm following the rules, Jesus. I'm a good person. I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm praying. I'm giving. But Jesus' response to that would be, isn't it possible you could do all those things and still have a heart that does not know God and doesn't love him? Absolutely. It happens all the time. It still happens all the time. Right here in this country. Right here in our churches. All the time. 
And Jesus is saying, and that, ladies and gentlemen, pay close attention to that. That is not the kingdom of God. That is not the kingdom of God I came to bring. And I want to radically challenge your notion of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that a disciple is someone that's not asking what is the bare minimum requirements for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but rather, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what does it really mean to be in the kingdom and really live in the kingdom? This is so important. See, Jesus was trying to get us to ask a deeper question because all of our actions and all our, our behaviors have a source. It's our heart. So to Jesus, a really important question to ask and a great place to start is, what is happening in your heart? What is happening in your heart when it comes to you and God? What's happening right now? I want you to think about it. you personally. What's happening with you and God in your heart right now? You feel distant? You feel close? Is there a lot of love there? Is it like um, fear? Is it like I'm, I'm, try, I'm just trying to make sure I do the right thing so I can get God to do what I want him to do, right? Is that is this, is this uh, transi- transactional kind of relationship with God? Because that's not what he asks you to, to enter into with him. He wants to know that your heart is with him. And this is not a new thing. What's interesting is that We go all the way back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Samuel. When God moved on Samuel and said, I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and I want you to pick, I'm going to show you who it is, but I want you to pray for and anoint the new king of Israel, right? And some of you may remember, Jesse, isn't that the dad of King David? Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. You're right on the money, all right? That's right. And so David was the youngest of all the brothers. And before Samuel was allowed to see David. He looked at all of the other brothers of Jesse's house and they're big strapping boys with big biceps and bulging chests and they're like the kind of guys that would get cast for a, you know, the good life commercial, all right? They look really good and he really wanted to bless one of them. He really wanted to anoint one of them for king. Like, oh, that guy looks like, oh, he looks even better than that guy. Like, he would make a great king. He'd be really good on a poster, you know, like, so good. People will love this guy. Just look at him, right? And what did God say to Samuel? He said, the Lord does not look at things, the things that people look at. People look at, let's say it together, the outward appearance this, by and large, is how we define the good life, right? You're not going to have anybody that's, that's, the, that's the depiction of the good life that doesn't have the nicest, newest, and got abs, you know, and really nice hair, right? God's saying that's not what's celebrated at people's funerals. I tell you right now, nobody cares about that. At the end, sum total of your life, outward appearance is not where it's at. But the Lord looks at the the heart, the core of who you are. That's what he's looking at. What is really going on inside of you? This was written in 1025 BC, and it's still true today, three, nearly 3,000 years later. It's still true, just as true as the day that God spoke this to Samuel. So here's what we're doing. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at six critical life situations that we're all going to face. The only one that is questionable is the one about marriage and divorce. We're going to get to in a few weeks. And obviously, you would have to be married for that one to apply to you. But really, all of them, they're situations you're going to be confronted with in this life. And Jesus is saying, these are some of the hardest 
ones to navigate and to live in the kingdom of God know how to do that. And I want to show you in the fine texture of life how you live out the kingdom of God. So this is packed full of beautiful insight, and I hope you don't miss it, okay? So this week, we're starting with looking at when you're irritated with somebody, okay? I know not you guys, but that first service I preached to you, they had a lot of people they were irritated with, but... Just kidding. Isn't it funny how Sunday is one of those days that from the time you wake up to the time you get to church, like that's going to happen a bunch of times, okay? There's going to be a lot of people that get on your last nerve and just dance. Like just, what? Like where are all these fools coming from? Like on the road and stuff. I mean, like it's just crazy. I I understand. uh, My heart goes out to you. I understand. It is always challenging on Sundays just to get the, the... you know, family together and to get the church. So, um, but it happens, and Jesus is saying, let me speak to a very real human condition everybody's going to have to face, frustration and anger. It's going to well up in you. Here's what he says, starting with verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, okay? Now that's really taken to the extreme, right? And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And this is judgment both here on earth and after this life is over. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Wow. So Jesus just takes anger and brings it right up on the same playing field and level with murder, that's huge. So either Jesus is, doesn't know what he's talking about or we don't fully understand how powerful and destructive anger is. Let's take a closer look at anger. And, and obviously you all know what anger feels like when it happens to you. If you're not, uh, you probably will before you get home, okay? Yeah. So we've all felt it. But here's the thing. I want you to, to, to see that Not only is it a feeling, it is a feeling, but it's a feeling that is pointing to something deeper going on inside of us. Let's take a look at this definition together. Anger is this feeling, but what is it primarily doing? Its primary function is to alert us to an obstruction of our will or our desire. In other words, I'm not getting what I want. So I'm upset about this. And part of that sometimes that happens whether it's at work or home, on the phone, online, whatever, somebody's bringing their anger to your doorstep. They're getting angry with you, and it is hard not to bring it right back to them. Serve them up what they're serving you, right? So when somebody gets angry with you, it makes you angry with them, and the thing just goes up and up and escalates, and my arms are not long enough to reach how far that goes sometimes. But what happens is as anger escalates, and you've seen it happen, it's certainly happened to me in my life, we stop thinking clearly. Just like we are somebody else when we're under the influence of drugs and alcohol, I'm telling you right now, I hope you hear this, you become somebody else when you are under the influence of anger. It will transform you into the ugliest version, (laughs) the person that you are ashamed of, you can't believe the junk that came out of your mouth and the way you acted and how, how you lost it. And that's anger. That's what happens. It feeds on itself. It feeds on other people's. I can't believe they would say that. 
I can't believe people would vent that online. So I'm going to vent my thing online. You know, like we, we, we feed on each other, right? And it manifests itself in our bodies and our psyche. We, it, there is a, a detrimental, toxic effect that happens to us emotionally, psychologically, and physically. In other words, Jesus is right. There is a murdering effect of anger that begins to manifest itself in our life. And let me share with you just some of the ways that medical science through research has shown that chronic anger, us holding on to anger, will have a detrimental effect in our bodies. Here, here's just a list, okay? The deadly effects of anger. Mental health issues, which are at epidemic proportions today. Increased anxiety, which is just ravaging our college campuses. And everybody, workplaces, stay-at-home Moms and dads, everybody is feeling this increased anxiety. And COVID made it worse, right? And ever since then, insomnia. I just talked to a guy this week. He's like, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. This is happening to so many people. Depression, brain fog. I can't think clearly. Join the club, right? We all feel like that sometimes. Fatigue. I'm just telling you the core, the origin, the epicenter of these things. For many people, it is anger, and it manifests itself in medical and physiological ways like stroke and heart disease. All of these escalate headaches, digestive problems, and then it spills over relationally, and it begins to destroy, murder, if you will, some of our relationships. It causes all kinds of stress in our family, in our friend circle, and even at work. We bring anger with us to work, and it does us no favors. It, it hurts everything we're trying to do. And, and here's the thing. Anger is so hard to let go of because we feel so justified in our anger. Because deep down you're like, but, but Will, I'm right and they're wrong. So like that seething, brooding anger doesn't have any place to go. You just keep throwing logs on the fire, right? And Jesus would say, you may be right, but you're not righteous. And you may be right, Christian, and all the things you're posting and everything you're saying and your bumper stickers or whatever it is, however you're broadcasting it, but you're not living like a citizen in the kingdom of God. When you do this, when you spew that kind of anger, you see, anger many times is fueled by self-righteousness. Not always, there are times where we may feel anger over something that is unright, that's wicked, that's awful. I get that, but the Bible is clear. Be angry and sin not, right? You need to repent of it. Don't let it get its, its talons on your heart. Don't let it get a grip on you. Don't let it like, camp out in your life, and now you're just marinating on it all the time. It will eat you alive. And if I can be really honest, this has been one of those areas for me. I have had to have a journey with Jesus Anger has been something I've had to learn how to keep at bay and give it and surrender it to God. And I feel like I'm, I mean, Leslie be the one to ask about this, but I feel like I'm doing better <laughs> than I used to. But I'm telling you, if I can be brutally honest and just self-confessional today, it really comes from a wounded ego. It's from us not getting what we want. It's from me feeling offended or you feeling offended by something somebody said or the way they acted or whatever, and you're not getting it and I'm not getting what we want. And we're mad about it. And it's created an entire outrage culture of our day. 
People feel so justified. I don't care what side what of the aisle you're on. It's like everybody feels like, of course I need to spew all of this. Jesus says, you really don't. <laughs> it's really not the way to following me. And Jesus brings it all the way back to the Old Testament teaching that God brought through his prophet Moses when, it talked, when he talked about murder. Okay, so there's this Ten Commandments. I'm sure you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it is number six of the Ten Commandments. And maybe you've read this one before. You shall not murder. And this is the one that Jesus is referring to. This premeditative, intentional destruction of another person, right? This is not accidental killings. This is not talking about... Um, what happened on the battlefield when they were fighting for their country, or if you're a police officer and you're, somebody dies in the line of duty, that is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about um, the sacrifices that were made at the temple. That is not what this, this is a completely different um, Hebrew word. That, it means intentional, premeditative destruction of another person, Okay. So the Pharisees would see a law like this, the, the Pharisees and the, uh, the scribes, uh, just like many of us today would say, well, I'm good on that one. I mean, I can't say uh, hallelujah on all 10 commandments, but on that one, I think I'm good. Never done that before. But here's the irony about these scribes and the Pharisees, that though they might not have said, I've never technically murdered anybody, but it was their anger towards Jesus that in a short time after this sermon that they were beginning to orchestrate his death, crucifixion, and execution. That, yes, technically they can say, well, it wasn't us that crucified Jesus. Yeah, it was the Romans. They did your dirty work for you, but it was your anger and your orchestration that caused the whole thing to happen in the first place. And we fall into the same sin when we start to justify our anger before God. But God, I'm like, I have never technically done this, but you have done things that have been ugly, hurtful, backstabbing, detrimental to other people out of anger. And Jesus would say, yeah, it's not the exact same outward behavior as murder, but it's coming from the same place. Make no mistake. It's coming from the same place. And this is so important for us to keep this at the forefront of our mind. And it uh, is how they justified their anger. So James, the brother of Jesus, he says in chapter 1, verse 20, I love this, human anger does not produce the, let's say together, the righteousness that God desires. Again, the right definition of righteousness will lead to understanding the kingdom. And just a quick refresher, it is a right love for God that leads to a right relationship with him and others that produces right behavior or actions in our life. This is the definition of that kind of righteousness that, that he's getting at here. And he's telling us human anger is not the road that will get you there. It goes the opposite direction. You will never arrive at the kind of righteousness that God wants as you foster, hang on to, brood, and feed the anger in your heart towards an individual or a group of people. It's just not going to work. And it's so important. And if you think about this idea of comparing your life, how it might turn out, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you continuing to nurse that anger in your heart, what is that going to look like? And if you decide, 
I'm going to give that over to God and really follow what Jesus says in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verses 33, where he says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. He's like, when you finally learn how to do this, there's so much other stuff that you've been worrying about you don't have to worry about anymore. God's got your back and he will take care of and he will bring justice. You don't have to be his vigilante on planet earth. He's got it, okay? And um, it, it's so important that we keep that in mind. In other words, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And I bet some of you have heard that from your grandma, your mama, somebody. That wisdom's been around a long time right there. I just wanted to bring that back up. There is nothing that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So important. Jesus shows us, he tells us that it was not only... Uh, not only was murder wrong, but the anger behind the act of murder is as serious as taking someone's life. You see, murder happens first inside of us before it happens outside of us. The vulgar language that comes out of your mouth towards another person, it's, it originated on the inside of us. The mouth is simply overflowing what the heart is full of, Jesus says. It is uh, any kind of pain, suffering, hurt that you inflict on another person, whether it's with your words or your deeds, it hurt, you hurt them first on the inside. Anybody who has ever attempted murder or caused murder, they murdered that person first on the inside. Jesus was saying, make no mistake about it. This is a premeditated thing, and we've got to pay attention to our hearts and what's happening on the inside of us. That when we hold on to that kind of resentment in, uh, against another person, it is slowly killing, it's slowly murdering us and other people. And it leads to something even deeper and more sinister, Jesus says, and that is contempt. Contempt towards another person. Contempt is a greater evil than anger, Jesus shows us, serving greater, uh, deserving greater condemnation. And this is what he's going to deal with next in verse 22. In verse 22, here's what Jesus says. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka. Okay, now the reason I'm saying it like that is because many transliterators, that, um, Bible scholars and commentators would say, this word Raka actually came from the sound that we make. Now, this is gross. When you round up spit on the back of your throat, okay? Raka, all right? And it literally means you empty-headed fool, you, 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 you worthless idiot. Now, that doesn't sound like, like that bad today. I mean, you probably don't want anybody calling you that over lunch, but like that is one of those words back in the first century that where somebody might call another person that, and it was implied that I'm replacing your regular name with Raka, you worthless idiot, you know? It is vulgar. It was very vulgar back then. And it was just one of those words that was used for people. It'd be like, hey, guess who I ran into at the grocery store today? Raka! You know, like, <laughs> not great. So anyway, that's what he was basically saying. Listen, this has been used a lot in our culture, and people are starting to use this word of contempt, of like, you're contemptible. You're no good. You're a worthless idiot. 
right? And I know you have felt like calling people that sometimes. I caught myself, I'm writing a sermon, right, during the ser- this week. I was going to church one day, driving to work in the morning, and this guy just zoomed past me going just insanely too fast. And I caught myself, that, oh, there I am right there saying it. I almost caught, and I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord, that's some progress right there. <laughs> I just encourage you, like, hey, if you're not a Christian today, Christians struggle with this too, all right? But Jesus gives us a way out that we don't have to be lockstep in this prison cell of like, we have to, well, I'm angry, I can't control myself, and I just have to say what's going to be said. I, can't, I just have to actually know. Jesus is showing us there's space in between what you're thinking and what you're doing. And you can begin to change what you're thinking, and when you do, it will change the way you behave. It's, it'll change what's coming out of you, and it's powerful. And it's an idea that it's more than just, I don't care for you, I hate you. It's, um, it, it's kind of the idea that I don't care anything about you or your kind, your people, right? And when we start to rock our people, we start to give them a title, those worthless idiots, whatever political group you feel that way about, whatever religious group you feel that way about, whatever group, subgroup of human beings on planet that you feel that way about, be so careful, Jesus is saying, because once you start to call them that, it becomes easier and easier, not just to exclude them, but to degrade them and ultimately hurt them and to justify hurting them, that it's okay Every time there has been a genocide in our history, it always started with raka kind of language towards another group. That it's okay. They're just rats. They're cockroaches. They're not human beings. We can treat them however we want. Jesus is not for kingdom use. Don't go there, right? He says this, you say to your brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you, let's say it together, you fool, right? So let's pause here for a second. Now that may not sound like it's worse than Raka, but it is actually a lot worse. It's this idea of a biblical fool. And what was intended behind that, that meaning, the, the connotation there, is an evil-hearted, willfully perverted, knowingly wicked Someone who knows better but is not doing better, they kind of like it. They actually really like doing the wrong thing. And they're like, get joy out of it. And this is kind of the idea of saying to someone, you are contemptible. You're beyond that. You're like, you're, you're like the kind of non-redeemable kind of person. You are so evil, so horrible, nothing good can come from you, and you will never be able to be redeemed. In other words, it's like you're the kind of person that is deserving of hell. You fool. And, and, and pardon my crudity, but it would be like modern-day language of saying, go to hell. Wow. Now, I really hesitate saying that in a sermon because I think in that clip might get used on YouTube like, look what Pastor Will said to his congregation. <laughs> I don't come off well on that one, but I think you get the idea that it's just, it is the worst, you blinking jerk, you what, whatever the worst title or thing you can think of that you would put on another person, that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's these contemptible titles that we throw on people and groups of people and we feel justified because we're right and they're wrong. 
And Jesus said, you may be right, but you're not righteous. And he goes on to say this. He says, if you say you fool, we'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Now this word hell here comes from the uh, Hebrew, or pardon me, the Greek word Gehenna, that it means out of the valley of Hinnom. So if you were looking at the city of Jerusalem, kind of southwest of the city was this valley of Hinnom where they took all their garbage and refuse and they burned it. And it was like a never-ending burn pile of garbage from Jerusalem. You can only imagine what that smelt like. Horrible, right? And it was this ongoing burning pile of refuse and it became the symbol for the place of judgment for the wicked. And it was... Appropriate, so appropriate, Jesus used it too. He was like, so be careful that if you start to live a life like this where you're passing judgment, you're not only not living in the kingdom, that you need to be careful of the same judgment you're passing on them. You think you're so high and mighty and so righteous, you better check yourself. I mean, this, isn't, this, this is Jesus just saying, listen, if you think you're living in the kingdom and you're doing this, you're not. You think you're living like my disciple and you're living like this, you're not. And it's not Jesus teaching works-based salvation. It is salvation by grace, through faith, through the forgiveness of sins, period. But once we begin to walk with him, there is consequences to how we behave. And he's asking us to really consider what is coming out of your heart. Our words of contempt reveal what is in our hearts. In other words, so important. Being careful what is coming out of our mouth. Even when we are running late and somebody cuts us off in traffic, what comes out of your mouth, right? That's a really good indicator of like, where do I need to begin with God? Like, forgive me, Lord. Help me to begin to learn to love. Let my knee-jerk reaction to be love and not condemnation, not contempt for another person. This is so important. And he says, um, no more of this contemptuous name-calling. And Jesus is showing us that Jesus is taking us deeper into the kind of love that God has for us. Like, this is what it looks like to walk in, to live in the love of God. And when we share that love with other people, it brings us into harmony with his life and his kingdom. And we begin to live this easy yoke that he had intended from the beginning. And it's beautiful and it's so attractive and it's attractive to other people because it's so refreshingly different than how everybody else lives their life. And once we make the decision to love, to love God, to love others, it determines a different destiny for our lives. It determines a different destiny for our lives. This is so important. Now let's skip to the next one about anger. You know, anger is one of those things that can take control of us. So I want to ask you right now, would you just consider where might anger be having influence that you're living under the influence of anger? Maybe not in all areas, but you would say, for sure, in that relationship, in that situation at work, with that situation politically, ugh, I can't even talk about it without anger taking some control of my words, my actions, my demeanor, my facial expressions. It's just, it's, it's right there under the surface. Let's just be honest. If we can't be honest about this, then this whole last 30 minutes was a waste of your time, and I hope it is not that. But the thing is, when we take anger seriously and really say, I don't want this just sitting on my heart, 
we can now deal with it. But here's, here's the thing about anger that's so crazy. It is like concrete. This is what we've learned um, through what Jesus is saying and even through the research that's been done on how it affects our life. It'd be like you standing in concrete, wet concrete about this deep, quick drying cement, right? And, and, and in a very short period of time, it's going to restrict your movements and then ultimately it's going to suffocate, begin to cut off the parts of your body that are in it. It's going to start hurting you. It's going to just start destroying you. It's going to start destroying other people, relationships. And I just want to encourage you, wherever that anger is happening, it's manifesting for you, would you just bring it before God today and just say, Lord, I'm asking you to help me to get free from this. I love what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. He says, and don't sin by letting anger, let's say the word together, anger, control you, right? Paul is telling us, he's like, God has revealed this to me over and over and over in my life, and I've seen it in other people's life. Anger has a controlling power. But don't think it's just like anger for anger's sake. There is a manipulative puppet master behind your anger. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Why? For the anger gives a foothold to the devil. Jesus was really clear about a spiritual enemy, Satan, the devil. Paul is going, the same enemy that Jesus talked about over and over and over is still very real, and he's still very alive, and he is working a sinister plan against everybody, especially those who have a justifiable, self-righteous anger that they're hanging on to, and you don't even realize it, but he's using it against you. You've given him a seat at your table, a voice in your head that is not good. It is destructive. It is eroding all the good things God's trying to do in your life. Jesus even said in John 10.10, that thief, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy everything. Everything. That's what he's doing, and he'll use your anger against you. He does it to people all the time. Things that come out of their mouth, the way they behave, like it escalates, and you're not in control anymore. Don't live like that. I just want to encourage you today that you would just stop this endless cycle of anger that's happening in your life. As James said in 120, human anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't produce the right kind of behavior, the kind of righteousness of a right love to God, leading to right relationship with Him and others, producing the right actions and behaviors. Here's the application prayer. I'm asking you to pray with me, simply saying, Lord, I need your help controlling my anger. I don't want to hurt my relationship with you or others anymore. I'm done with that. I surrender to you and your way of thinking. If you would, right now, let's bow together in prayer. And would you just right now before God, just saying, God, I'm giving you all my anger, all of my issues with anger right now. Uh, the people... Right now, just let God bring to your mind, to the surface of your heart, who are the people, who are the groups, who are the ones that are your triggers. They're a trigger for anger. Every time you begin to read their comments or look at the, what they're doing, you see their face, you hear their name, whatever it is, it causes you to start tumbling down that rabbit hole of anger 
and it just escalates and you lose control. And it has so many murderous, detrimental effects on you and the other people that you share this life with. Jesus is saying, let's pay attention to what's going on in our hearts. You have heard it said, but I tell you, I'm going to give you a new way of thinking. And that thinking begins with the right heart before God. Would you just tell him right now, God, I want a heart that loves you. And I want that love to be greater than any anger I may have towards another person. I want that anger to get eclipsed by my love for you and that that love for you would overflow into my love for other people and begin to see them as you see them. They are your creation. They have been created for your purposes. They've been made for you, God. Who are we to try to pass some kind of condemning judgment of, uh, of contempt on them? God, help us to surrender that to you right now. Where is that happening for you? Where is that anger taking a hold? Where has it become an influence in your life? Would you give it to him right now? All across this room, if you're giving God something that has been a source of anger for you, I would love to pray for you right now. Would you have the courage with me? I'm raising my hand right now. Would you raise your hand? And let's just tell God, I, I, I need your help, God. This isn't going to just magically go away someday. This will make me a slave until I surrender it to you. I don't want to be a slave to anger anymore. God, I pray for every hand going up right now that you would help draw their heart closer to you. You would help them to choose right now. Say, God, I love you. I choose love of you. And I pray that love for you would overflow into love for other people, especially those who are hardest to love for me. Help me to begin to love them and to begin to pray for them and to be able to pray for blessings on them and let you take care of it, Lord. Would you tell him that right now? You may lower your hands. And God, I pray right now for any person that can hear my voice online in the room right now that would say, I don't have a relationship with God. I have felt far from God and I, 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 maybe God loves me but I don't think he likes me very much. Today is the day when that ends. I want to invite you into a loving relationship with your Heavenly Father. Would you just, right where you sit, would you just say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. And the, the penalty that you paid for my sin on the cross and then raising from the dead and conquering that sin was for me. And I receive it right now. Would you tell him, I receive your forgiveness of my sin right now. And I ask you to be the leader and Lord of my life from this moment forward. If you just ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sin and the Lord and leader of your life right now, would you just lift your hand saying, Will, that's me. I'm asking Jesus to take over my life. Anybody here? The balcony, God bless you, ma'am. Right there, I see you. Anybody else? Right back over here. Thank you. God bless you, sir. On the back row right there. Anybody in the balcony? Anybody? Giving it all over to Jesus. Hold nothing back today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for the challenging, hard to hear, sometimes feels almost a little impossible, but apart from you, it is impossible. But what is impossible for mankind, for humankind, is possible for God. And I pray, God, that we would move forward in faith and saying, God, help us, help us to live this part of our life in sync with your kingdom. It's gonna be a journey. It's not gonna happen overnight. 
But God, you are with us, and we thank you for that. And with you, all things are possible. We praise you. We pray it all in the incredible name of Jesus. And all those who gave your life to Christ today, please share that with somebody. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.